0: A few years ago, uh, Joaquin Phoenix, the actor, won an Oscar for the role he played in a movie called Gladiator. And I think the reason he won that role was not just because he he did a brilliant job in acting, but the character that he was portraying in that movie was one that I think the emotions of that character resonated with us maybe in in a way we didn't want to own up to. If you know the movie, you know that he was in a sense the villain, but you also know that it wasn't purely black and white. You you might remember the scene when he, as his character Clematis, was getting the information from his father Marcus Aurelius that he was not going to be Caesar. That Marcus Aurelius, as Caesar, knew, knowing he was going to die, was not going to pass on that role to his son Clematis. And if you can remember the film, it, his face was just so contorted, so so distressed he was in such pain and it wasn't the pain of just someone who was wanting to have power it was the pain that was left over from a lifetime of perceived rejection from his father he says with tears in his eyes and his voice shaking what older wiser man will take my place and then his father Marcus really says you know it's going to be this person who's the hero of the uh, of the show and he says, he says to his father, you wrote to me once, you said, esteem the four chief virtues, and he lists off what those virtues are, and he says, but I knew instantly that none of my virtues were on your list. And he weeps, and he, he's, he's so crushed because he says to his father, he says, even then it was this, you didn't want me as your son. And, and we see that scene and we go, oh man, we know what that guy feels like. Because all of us know what it's like to be in a place where we long to be accepted. We long to be in a place where people look at us or, the, or someone that we care about sees us in a good light. We want to be identified. We want to have an identity that is one that's, uh, that's, that we've been accepted, that we're loved as we are. And so we can rest, and even though he becomes the villain of the film, we can still resonate and have compassion for his character because we understand i know what that feels like to feel like i don't have that approval of the one i want it from most and the sad thing is guys many 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 professing believers in jesus experience that same thing many professing believers in jesus they 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 want to have the character that, that would please their father They see the lists that God says. He says, we we see when he he talks about that the fruit of the Spirit is is love and joy and peace and self-control and goodness and kindness. They go, oh, Father, I would have that, but I know I don't have those on my list and therefore I must, you know, be rejected by you. And they make the mistake of assuming that their identity is based on what they do and not based on who they are in Christ. Christ and so what Paul's doing here in in, in this last part of chapter three and, and, and continuing to sort of talk about the the reality of being justific, justified by faith alone in Christ alone and and tying that to Abraham as our father he 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 talks about this reality of, of who we actually are in Christ he he wants the the, the believers in the Galatia to stop trying to live up to some standard that some person's telling them, some Judaizer, some false teacher saying, you have to be like this, and that's your identity. When you are circumcised, then you'll be identified as a believer. When you fulfill this role, then you'll be identified as a child of God. And he's saying, no, that's not it. Your identification as a child of God doesn't come from what you do. It comes from what Christ has done. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. He starts off with this phrase in verse 26. He says, For you are all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Now we're going to see in these first few verses how our identity is simply received through faith in Christ Jesus. Our our very identity, who we are, is that which we receive. We receive an identity through faith in Jesus Christ. You receive that. Now, in saying this, it, it seems almost too good to be true. But it's not. It's the reality. Paul doesn't even try to explain how that happens. Paul doesn't even try to explain why that's true. He just says it's a fact. When you've received Christ, you've received a new identity. You are a son of the Most High because you received Christ by faith. He just states that as a fact. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ. Let's talk about this identification. Let's talk about this identity. Because there's three things in these first few verses about our identity, that we need to see. The first thing is this that this is an, an eternal identity. It's eternal. When he talks about you're all sons through faith in Christ Jesus, he's talking about an eternal relationship. The Bible says in John chapter 1 that as many as received him, received Christ, to them he gave the right, literally the authority, to be the children of God. Someone once said there's no abortions in the kingdom of heaven. In other words, once a person's been born into the kingdom or been conceived, that person is going to be brought forth to delivery. And there is this reality, guys, that the relationship that God begins with us, the position He gives us as sons is an eternal position. The identity He gives us as sons is an eternal identity. It's ours. Now, there's a difference between our identity in Christ, and our fellowship with Christ. I think maybe sometimes this is where we get mixed up. See, fellowship is, is that which, which requires two participants. You can't have fellowship by yourself. You, you can't have fellowship with yourself. It requires two participants. You have to be willing to share something in common with someone else. That's what the word fellowship means, to share in common. When we fellowship with God, we do so with Christ or through Christ because we share in common the same life. The life that is God, the life that God is, He shares with us. He gives us that life through His Spirit because of His Son. And so what happens is we have this fellowship that we share and it takes us participating in that life. It takes us Pursuing God and talking to God and communicating to God and listening to God and obeying God, all those aspects affect our fellowship with God. But, listen, fellowship is not identity. We fellowship with God because of who we are in Christ. Do you see? It's not we are who we are in Christ because we fellowship with God. The identity comes first, the fellowship follows that. Now, it's important because we're going to talk about fellowship. We're going to talk about the things that affect our fellowship when we get to chapter 5. But for now, what we need to understand is what our identity is and that our identity doesn't have to do with our fellowship. You might not have been in fellowship with God for a long time. Some of you guys might be here today and you might think, well, the only fellowship I get, quote-unquote, is on, on a Sunday morning. And so you're maybe listening to me teach, you're singing some songs, and maybe you're communing with God and maybe you're not. And maybe some of you guys have been in a place where it's been, it's been months or weeks before, since you've cracked open your Bible or since you've got on your face and said, God, I need to commune with you or since you've praised God on your own. And, and you're in a place where that fellowship is just, it's just hasn't been there and you feel distant from God. Well, listen, you might be distant from God and you might need to repent of that and begin the fellowship with God, but that doesn't change who you are. You are a son or a daughter of God through faith in Jesus. It's an eternal relationship. He goes on to say this in verse 28. He says, therefore, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So it's not just an eternal identity he's given us, but it's a relational identity. It's interesting that Paul would use these terms in this way because the rabbis used to pray. Paul was, of course, taught to be a rabbi, taught under the rabbis. The rabbis used to pray, God, I thank you that I'm not a Gentile, nor a slave, nor a woman. That was their prayer. Thank you, God, that I'm not a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. It's interesting that Paul would sort of use those things even in that order, that he would bring up this reality in, in talking about identity. Listen, it's not about that. There's there, you're a Jew or a Greek. It's not about if you're a slave or a free. It's not about whether you're male or female. Those things don't make up your identity. Now, this also has given us a platform by which we relate to each other, because traditionally, how we relate to each other in the world before we come to Christ, and even unfortunately sometimes after we come to Christ, is whether or not somebody's Jewish or Gentile, or maybe in our culture whether somebody is. You know, Caucasian or not Caucasian. Someone's of color or not of color. Are they are they African? Are they are they Asian? Are they British? Are they American? And we can tend to find our identity in our culture, and relate to each other based on that. Or sometimes it's about slave or free. Obviously, in the in the Roman culture in a Greek culture, those were social uh, standings. It wasn't just the fact that you know some guys you know, had control and some guys didn't. It wasn't just that. There, there, I mean, there were some slaves that were highly educated. There were some slaves that were, you know, doctors and, and, and personal lawyers for uh, a rich family. And so, they, yet they were slaves. They were owned. They were, in, they were owned, at least for a time, by their masters. And so it wasn't just this idea, as we think of slavery. It was still a bad thing, but it wasn't this idea, as we think of slavery. It was almost like employment, employment. But still, it's like a social standing. And sometimes what can happen is, is that we can relate to each other based on social standing. Oh, we're, we're just simple working class folk. They're the rich ones. Or, you know, we worked, we've worked hard to get where we are. Those people just, they don't seem to get it together. And we can relate to one another by social standing. But Paul says it's, it's not those things. Or what about this this reality of, uh, of male or female? We can tend to have this situation where we can think somehow that we're we're better because we're males or we're victims because we're females and we relate to each other based on this well you're a man you wouldn't understand you know or man, women just back off you don't know how hard it is to be a man and we relate to each other based on these things and paul's saying these things are not our main identity we don't identify ourselves by these things. Now, in saying these things, Paul is not he's not saying those distinctions don't still exist. Paul's not saying there's no such thing as Jew and Gentile anymore. Th- those distinctions still exist. Within the church, that's not our identity. Within the church, that's not our basis for relating to each other. That's not how we should view each other, Jew, Gentile, black, white this kind of culture, that kind of culture. That's not how we identify with each other, but there's still those distinctions. We even see, guys, when John talks about the vision of heaven that he had in the book of Revelation and this this, this vision of of all these redeemed folks, he says, he saw those who have been redeemed out of every tongue, tribe, and nation. Out of every tongue, tribe, and nation. And so there's this reality that there's some sort of our sort of ethnicity or our culture that still is identified when the Lord returns. It's still there in the heavens. It still brings glory to God. And so those distinctions aren't all bad. In fact, one of the problems is, it's the fact that we want to say those distinctions are bad that causes us to be more distinct. We actually create racism when we want to say all races are basically the same. They're not. Cultures are not all the same. Some cultures have uh, you know, uh, value in, in certain things and other cultures value in other things. The issue is not which culture is better and nor is the issue is which cult- are all cultures the same. The issue is there's distinctions and what Paul's saying, there is distinctions but those distinctions shouldn't be where identity comes from. And you know, one of the greatest things God's given me in coming to Great Britain is he's removed from me this, this my seeing my identity as an American. And that's probably, you know, harder for you to understand, especially if you're British, that might be hard for you to understand. But as Americans, now I'll tell you what, we, we oftentimes are very patriotic. We, we, we see our identity as Americans as something special, something, you know, a, a privilege. And so when, when moving here, knowing that I had to sort of put some of that aside so I could relate to people, I didn't realize how, much that was, how important that was to me. It wasn't just missing my family, my friends or the kind of culture I was familiar with. I really saw that as part of my identity, and God in his grace has allowed me to sort of put that aside. you know I'm, I'm glad to have been raised in America. I still have favorable feelings towards my home country, but I'm not an American. I'm a Christian. It's interesting as well, because when Paul talks about <clears throat> when Paul talks about in verse. 26 about as many of you were baptized in the Christ he's talking about receiving an identity it's interesting because he talks about if you've been baptized in Christ you've put on Christ and there's a lot of debate is he talking there about water baptism or not now I hope this doesn't sound like a tangent but it's important to the context I don't think it's talking about water baptism per se the Bible says in the book of Ephesians there's one baptism the Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians that we've all been baptized in into Christ by the Holy Spirit. yet the Bible speaks of a water baptism that's a baptism of repentance that John gave. The Bible also speaks of the baptism that we have a water baptism in Christ. So which one is it? Well, I think it's all those. It's the reality that the Holy Spirit has baptized us into Christ. The Holy Spirit has done this work by giving us this new life. He's regenerated us into the body of Christ. And when we're baptized in water, listen, when we're baptized in water, we are just publicly declaring, this is my identity. In fact, that phrase, to put on Christ, is a phrase that that's used to describe what a Roman soldier would do when he became a soldier. You guys may or may not know that in Rome, not everyone was a soldier, and the soldiers weren't necessarily a separate class all the time. If Rome was not at war... Rome did not have an army. I don't know if you guys knew that. And, and, and when Rome was not at war, which is hardly ever, uh, nobody was a soldier. But when Rome was to go to war, when they were to enforce the Pax Romana, they would then begin to recruit soldiers. And they would handpick those soldiers. And those soldiers would come and they were to take an oath, a solemn oath, and when they took the solemn oath, they agreed to eat a certain way, and be a certain way, and fight a certain way. And when they took this oath, they would put on their armor. And as they put on that armor, they were saying, listen, I've made an oath. I'm committed to, to, to be a soldier of Rome, and now in putting the armor on, I'm identifying that fact. In other words, there was first a commitment, there was first a receiving of that call. Will you be a soldier of Rome? Yes, I will be a soldier of Rome. There was a first a receiving of that, and then there was an outward manifestation of that by putting on the armor. And when Paul uses this idea, or when he talks about this idea of as many have been baptized as put on Christ, he's given us that picture That when we have got to a place where we knew we need a Savior, we personally need a Savior, and we cry out to God because God, by His Spirit, opened our eyes to our need and opened our eyes to the sufficiency of what Jesus has done, and we said, Lord, save me, that God did that. He saved us and baptized us into the body of Christ. And then when we're baptized in water, we are saying publicly, this is my identity, I'm a soldier of Christ. I'm a follower of Jesus. Baptism, water baptism, doesn't make you that; it just identifies you as that. It just confirms the reality. Now I say that because you have this this point that this thing that Paul's trying to bring out, which is that you know what our our eternity, or I mean, our relationship with each other, our identity, this relational identity that we have, is not based on the fact that. Well, I was baptized in this church, or I was baptized by this church. It's based on the fact that Christ has, or the Holy Spirit has baptized us into Christ. We just acknowledge that by baptism. That's important, guys, because most of you here were not baptized in this church. Many of you were, but most of you weren't. You were baptized in a different church, and that's okay. Because your identity is not because you were water baptized by some Presbyterian guy or some Baptist guy or some C of E guy. Your identity is based on the fact that Christ has baptized you into his body, into his family. And your identity is now, you are brothers and sisters. I don't remember what Holly and I were talking about when we had this conversation a couple weeks ago. But we were talking about something. (laughs) And I remember I made the statement to her, uh, to the fact of, well, you, you know, it's like the fact is, you and I are brother and sister. I mean, and I knew that. I've known that intellectually about all of us. But for some reason, when I said that, it really hit me. I just sort of, it sort of struck me that I'm talking to my sister. My sister, who was raised in Singapore, <laughs> but is my sister in Christ. And it really just moved me. I just thought, wow, this is really cool. I have a sister from Singapore. I have brothers and sisters from Great Britain and Africa and Kyrgyzstan and all over the place. And my relationship is based on that identity. They are my brothers and sisters. You see, we are always wanting to relate to each other based on, well, this is the way we do ministry. Or this is the church that I was baptized in. Or, or this is the, 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 the place that I call my church home where really our connection is so much bigger and deeper than that. It's a reality that we are all brothers and sisters through faith in Christ. It's a relational reality. One of the things that we have to understand is that in Christ we have this corporate identity. It's not just this idea that I am a child of God. It's that we are, in Christ, his children. There's a corporate identity. There's a personal responsibility. Each of us has to put our individual faith in Christ. Each of us has to choose to believe. But there's a corporate identity. We've been born into a family. If you've, uh, those of you who are parents, you're going to know exactly what I'm talking about. Maybe some of you guys that uh, just remember it was like having brothers and sisters, but you know in families, people don't always get along. And one of the reasons we don't always get along in families, is, if we're honest, is that each, of, each member of the family wants to do their own independent thing. That's usually the, the, the root of the problem. Usually somebody says, I want to do this, even if it affects someone else in the family. No, that's not fair. I want to do that. And a fight breaks out. And so we, if, we, if we continue to think about our own individual identity, what happens is it causes conflict. And therefore, what we see in the Scripture, in the New Testament specifically, is that our identity is not just this individual identity. I am a child of God, but we are children of God. We have a corporate identity. And that has, we have a personal responsibility to relate to each other that way. How do we do that? Peter said this in 1 Peter 1, verse 22. He said, Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit and sincere love of the brethren... Love one another fervently with a pure heart. That phrase there, love of the brethren, it's one word. It's where we get the name of the city, Philadelphia. It's brotherly love, one word. It's love as brothers. That's important to recognize that because, of course, he gives a command to also love one another, agape one another. So he, first he says, make sure that there's phileo between you, but also agape one another. In other words, since you should have in Christ this phileo, this brotherly connection, this family connection, that should be expressed in a sacrificial love as your oldest brother Jesus did. That's your identity. Your identity is I am one of the, the children of God. I'm in the family of God through faith in Christ. Therefore, I should love my family. Now, have you ever met anybody who thought, I don't really think I need to love my family? Ever met anybody like that? We've seen examples of that. We've seen some atrocities in the news in the last few years, haven't we? It's amazing. It's scary to me. It's, it's, I wonder why we gone, have gone so far in this culture. I, I think partly it's demonic and partly it's just how we've gotten away from, from the truth of the scripture. But we, we've seen these horrendous things where moms murder their children sometimes because of just you know, deep depressive issues from chemical imbalances and stuff, sometimes just because of pure selfishness, Father's doing the same thing. Things that would have been atrocious, uh, maybe a, at least in our culture a few hundred years ago, are now just sort of commonplace. We think, how does that happen? Where does that come from? Well, I think a lot of it comes from the fact that we, we tend to think, well, what can I get out of life? What's, what's my purpose? What's my identity? And we forget this is a part of a family. Most people, though, have what the Bible calls natural affection. You talk to anybody on the street, I don't care if they're an atheist, if you said, okay, you, know, you don't believe in God, so let me ask you a, a moral question. Do you think it's important to love your family? they say, well, of course it's important to love your family. Of course it's important to commit your family. Family's everything. Family's first. There's something that tells us You know, that family connection is more important than anything. Well, listen, guys. The New Testament, the gospel says it's not your earthly family that's the important one. It's your heavenly family. That's why Jesus talks about, you know, I've come to bring a sword, dividing even mother from daughter, father from son. Even family relationships get divided because it's not because he's wanting to mess up our natural families. It's just really the opposite. But there's a reality that as we realize we've been birthed into a new family, our priority is that new family. Our identity is that new family. Therefore what we need to do is is love them the way God calls us to love them. And so it's it's being it's it's having been purified by being born in the Spirit. It's having this the sincere love of the brethren, this understanding that we're part of God's family. It's that that motivates us to love one another fervently with a pure heart. He says a similar thing later on in in chapter three, verse eight. He says, all of you be of one mind, having compassion on one another, love as brothers. Again, it's that phileo word, one word in the Greek. So there's this need for us, guys, to see this is our identity. Our identity is brothers and sisters in Christ. And you know what? Guess what? You gotta love your family. You gotta love your family. This to me is the, the, probably the number one reason it's important for us to find a church that God's called us to and commit to it. It's not so much just the, rea- the reality that, that, you know, it's not this idea that, well, we're afraid of what might be happening in other churches or we want a different style of ministry. You know, a lot of those things are just selfish motivations. Now, the, the reality is we need to say, God, where would you have me be in fellowship? What family within your family am I committed to? then help me to commit. Help me to love fervently those people. Guys, this is our identity. Now, it's not just an eternal identity. It's not just a relational identity. It's also an historic identity. Another cool thing about moving to, to Great Britain was uh, a sort of sense that I'm connecting to my roots. H- having grown up in a Hispanic community, uh, I, I was a minority. 65% of my school was Hispanic. And so uh, I, I was a minority. I was one of the, the, you know, just one of the Caucasian kids. So much was it obvious to me I was a minority growing up. And it was, it was uh, more I was... Uh, I was more of a minority in elementary school. By the time I got to high school, it was not so much of a minority, but when I was in elementary school, it was even more so. And I remember lying to my friends and telling them I was Mexican. <laughs> I, I made up the story. I made up the story that my parents were on a vacation when my mom was pregnant and they they couldn't get back home and so I was actually born in Mexico. So all my Mexican friends were all, Puro Mexico, alright, we knew you were with us homes, you know, and it was like we were really close, you know. I just wanted to be Mexican. <laughs> I mean, I did, and it, and it wasn't just because I felt like I stood out. I, I looked at their culture and thought, oh, I want to be that. They know where they come from. They know what they stand for. And I was like, most Americans, sort of like this mutt, you know. I'm sort of Swedish and a little bit of Scottish and a little bit of French and a little bit of Cornish and American Indian and, you know. I I was like this mutt. But these guys, they knew, man, Mexico. That's where they were from. I want to be Mexican. And so I lied. And so there's always this part of me that, gosh, what's my roots? And then right before we moved here, my mom gave us a, uh, what do you call it? I, I just blanked out. Family tree, thank you very much. A family tree. And I found out, you know, wow, look at that. I have ancestors in Cornwall. And I thought, ooh, my roots. But you know what? That itself isn't even satisfying enough. It's kind of like, yeah, but where do they come from? And, and how far does that go back? And what does that even mean to be Cornish? I like pasties. I mean, what's up with that? <laughs> and it's, what's, what's great, guys, listen, is that Paul here is, is saying to these Galatian Gentiles, he's saying, listen, and in verse 29 he says, and if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. You know what he's saying to them? Listen, you don't just have an eternal identi- identity in Christ. You don't just have a relational identity in Christ. You have an historic identity in Christ. You are descendants of Abraham by faith. That's your identity. See, guess because our identity isn't so much about what sort of DNA runs through my veins. Our identity is what sort of faith is in, in my heart. Whom do I trust? Who is my father? My father is the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you receive Christ as your Savior, your father is the God and father of Lord Jesus Christ. Abraham's father was the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's your history. Now, if you look at your family tree, look back and you read Old Testament history, you know you're looking at your family tree by faith. A lot of messed up people. And it's encouraging you to know, oh, Lord, thank you that I'm accepted because I'm in Abraham. Thank you I'm accepted because I'm in Christ, the same way Abraham was accepted. But that's your identity. Now, it's important, guys, to see this because, you know what? When we try to find our identity in something else or someone else, we're undermining the identity that's been given to us in Christ. When we try to find our identity not in, in that which is eternal, in Jesus, then we're trying to find our identity in what's temporal. People ask you, so, you know, I, I heard you say something about God, are you religious? Well, um, I, I go to servant's church. Is that your identity? Man, I sure hope not. It's kind of a lame identity, to be honest. I go to servant's church. Oh, really? Where's your church? Well, we actually don't have a building. Uh, I mean, you just sort of have to explain why you meet in the school, and everyone's like, what's up with that? And, No, your identity is not that you're part of servants' church. That's a temporary identity. Your identity is that you're in Christ. Are you religious? Nah, not really. But I'm in Jesus. (laughs) I'm a a child of God because of Jesus. That's my identity. Now, we don't say that because we think we sound weird. Well, guess what you sound weird when you say go to servants' church? So you might as well just say, well, no, I'm not religious, but I do have a relationship with God through Jesus. I am His child. Why is that any weirder than saying I go to church? It's true. It's eternally true. If, if you're not relating to one another based on being brothers and sisters, what do you do? You relate it to each other based on football. Or music. Or what's your favorite pub? Or a million other different things. That doesn't go very well, does it? If you guys have ever done that, you find that you relate to each other on the basis of football until you find out you love opposing teams. <laughs> And the relationship's a little bit shaky there, isn't it? Go, Ipswich. What? This happens. You relate to each other on music until you disagree about what's good music and what's not good music. I mean, there's no foundation if you don't see your relational identity in Christ. And even historic, guys, when we start looking for a cultural identity in anything else but the fact that we are saved by grace alone through faith alone and Christ alone, It just, everything breaks down. No, God wants us to see, Paul's wanting these guys to see, this is your identity. Your identity is in Christ. Again, Peter, what does he say? Peter wrote, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood. Notice, a holy nation. His own special people. Why? That you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now, guys, I want to make sure that you understand something, okay? These praises and the good works we do, those things do not define our identity. They only demonstrate it. Look what happens in chapter 4, verse 1. Paul brings up this first-century analogy. Look what he says. He says, Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, does not differ at all from a slave, though he is master of all. But he is under guardians and stewards until the time appointed by the farmer. Now Paul's using an analogy that would be common and understandable to them, but take for us takes a little bit of explaining. In, in the Roman culture, as in, in the Greek culture, as in lots of cultures, the Persian culture had a similar sort of setup. Children, specifically sons, were initially raised and trained up by servants. We talked a little bit about that last week, didn't we? With the tutor, that one who basically carried the rod and made sure the child got the education they were supposed to get. They learned from their teacher. But there is also this reality that they would, go, they would go from maybe a tutor or from a guardian to a tutor to a steward. In fact, the word for guardian there is a word that's often used to describe uh, that kind of slave or that kind of, of sort of a teacher of a, of a child that basically took care of the child from 0 to 14 years. They, they were the ones that made them go to school or, or made sure when they came home that they fulfilled their responsibilities and that sort of a thing. And then when they became 14, they went under a steward. They went under the person who actually ran the entire household for their father. And that steward would sort of show them, okay, this is how this works, and this is how we do this, and this is how this gets spent. So they would understand the runner of the household so that when they would come of age and they were given the responsibility of the household, they knew what was supposed to happen with it. So the steward had to say, this is what your father has me do with this, this is what your father has me do with that, and he would have to explain how the household was run. Now, a young person, a son specifically, would be a steward from anywhere from the ages of 14 to sometimes even as old as 25. There was no law that said they had to become uh, an heir or they had to get their inheritance at a certain age, but it just depended upon the father deciding when was that person mature enough, when was that son mature enough. And so they would have this, this uh, ceremony each year, a certain time where the Romans would sort of all kind of do this official Almost adoption ceremony with their with their sons. This kind of saying to the sons, "This is my son. Uh, he will inherit these things. I recognize him as my heir to the throne. He now has control over all my things." And so, the, depending on on how mature their son was, it would depend on if that year that son was brought into that. That's this is the idea that Paul is using. Here's this analogy that he's using. This this reality that you know what uh, you were under stewards and you were under guardians you know in a physical sense and these guys taught you right from wrong they said here's what you need to do here's what's expected of you here's what a steward does and all the like now in giving this analogy he then says this applies to us he says in verse three even so we he says when we were children were in bondage under the elements of the world Now, what's he talking about First of all, when he uses the word children, he uses a word that means that, when, that person who's not able, that young person who's not able to communicate on their own. They can't talk on their own. It speaks more of maturity than it does of age. So he's saying, when we were still immature, so to speak. <coughs> and Then he says that we, when we were immature, we were in bondage to the elements of the world. Now, in this context, it's obvious that Paul is, is relating the, this phrase, the elements of the world, with the reality of the law. Which is weird because in a sense he seemed to be saying there's something worldly about the law. Yet we just talked last week about the reality that the law is good and it's right and it's holy. God's law is just that. It's God's law. So what, what's he talking about? Well, What he's talking about is this reality that, that, that Satan takes the law of God, which is good and right and holy, and he twists it to use it for something that's demonic. He, he twists it and makes it into something that is Worldly. Now, he'll, we'll see later on, uh, Lord willing, next week, where he talks about the beggarly elements of the world and not being under bondage to them again. And he's talking, of course, to Gentiles who didn't keep the law but had their own religious activities. And so what, basically what Paul's saying is he's saying whether it's living by some pagan religion or trying to live by the law of God, if you're trying to be right with God or trying to find your identity by doing these things, It's demonic. It's demonic. It's worldly. That's why he calls it the basic elements of the world." He said a similar thing in Colossians chapter two verse eight. He said, "Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles it's the same word for elements here in Galatians, the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ." In other words, the basic worldly principle, whether it's under pagan religion or Judaism. The basic worldly principle is you are identified by what you do. Again, let me uh, give a reference to Hollywood. The movie Batman uh, Batman Begins, Uh, the one with, uh, I just lost his name, but anyway, you know, the more modern one, Batman Begins, Christian Bale, that's the guy's name, Christian Bale. There's a scene in that movie where he's sort of, he's acting as if he's a drunk party boy to try to put off people that, from the scent that he's actually Batman. And he sees his sort of ex-girlfriend, soon to be future girlfriend, he sees her and she's sort of ashamed and wagging her finger at him because if he's acting like this playboy. And she says, remember Bruce, we are identified or we're known by what we do. Not by who we are, not by being Bruce Wayne, but by what we do. And when she says it, you see he's sort of ashamed and conflicted because he wants to be... You know, impressive to his girlfriend, and yet he's put it on an act, and he wants you could just part of wants to say, but I'm bad man, but he can't. And so he's ashamed, and he's you know, he's like, Oh man, and, and you hear that and you think, oh man, that sounds even noble. That sounds right. I'm identified by what I do. That's the basic principle of the world. But that, listen, is not the gospel. That's not the gospel. And when we try to be identified by what we do. We're actually being worldly, even if what we do is good. Even if what we do is in accordance to the law. What's my identity? I pray every morning. Is it good to pray every morning? Sure it is. But that's not your identity. What's your identity? I read through the Bible at least once every year. Is that a good thing to do? Yeah, but that's not your identity. What's your identity? I'm involved in as in, 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 in worship at church, or I'm involved in Sunday school at church, or I'm involved in setting up and taking down at church. Well, that's good, but is that your identity? No, it's not. And what happens is, we even in the church get sucked into this basic element of the world, this basic rule of the world, this principle of the world, which is you're identified by what you do. And Paul wants these guys to understand, listen, listen, Your identification is not defined by what you do. It might be demonstrated by what you do, but it's not defined by what you do. This is one of the reasons why I don't like being called Pastor John. I don't flip out and make a big deal if someone calls me Pastor John, but pastor is not my title. Pastor is not my identity. It's my job description. Would you like to be called Plumber Bob? (laughs) Accountant Dave, you know? housewife Mary or something? That's not your identity. It's just your job description. It's just how you serve people. No, our identity is not what we do. It's not defined by what we do. We demonstrate by what we do, but it's not defined by what we do. Our identity is is not that. When we do that, guys, Paul's saying it's worldly. It's even demonic. Don't let the devil rip you off and say, who are you? Are you really a son of God? Prove to these people that you're a child of God by doing X, Y, and Z. You don't have to prove that to anybody. When Peter exhorts us to make our calling and election sure, it's to make sure in ourselves that we're called by God, elect by God, not before anybody else. I don't have to prove to you that I'm called and elect. I just have to know before God that I'm called and elect. Do you understand what I'm saying? That's your identity. Guys, let's be honest. Isn't this why we struggle getting on with each other? Because we want to be identified as something. I, I'm that way. <coughs> Can I be really transparent at the risk of you guys losing all respect for me? <laughs> I, I want to be identified as a guy who's hard. Because that used to be my reputation. That was hard. I could take people out. And there is a part of me, my pride, my flesh, that says, that's still part of my identity. The truth is, I'm almost 42 years old. (laughs) I'm not so hard anymore. I think I am, but I probably get taken out by a 60-year-old now. That's not my identity. But my flesh wants to be identified by that. Let me make another confession. I want to be identified as a good Bible teacher. You know, sometimes, guys, I, I confess to you, my motivation in doing things is so that I can be known as a good Bible teacher. But you know what? That's worldliness. That's carnality. That's the enemy wanting to say, John, that's your identity. Because you know what happens when I do that? Then on those Sundays where I just really bomb or on those Fridays when I really blow it, which happens more often than I like to admit it happens, I go home going, I am nothing, I'm a loser, life is pointless, God, kill me now. <laughs> now you laugh at me, but you do the same thing about your hair, girls, <laughs> or about your body type, or about your place in the office, guys, or about how much work you received. Don't lie to me, you do the same things. We do that, don't we? And what Paul wants us to get through our fat heads is that that is earthly, sensual, and demonic. It's not the gospel. The gospel frees us from that. Your identity is not a good father, a good parent, a good child, a good employee. Your identity is that you are accepted in the beloved. That's your identity. Everything else that's thrown on you, it's bogus. Now, just so that we can just screw this into your head even further, I want you guys to see now in these last final verses that our identity is not, obviously as we just said, it's not defined by what we do. But listen, our identity is based on what's been done for us. Check this out. On what's been, what we've been given. Our identity is based on what we've been given. Look at verse four. He says, but when the fullness of time had come, And I won't get into it today for the sake of time, but it's amazing to study what was happening in the world when Jesus came. The state of the Roman Empire, the extent of the Roman Empire, uh, the, 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 the commonness of the language because of the Greek culture, uh, the, the, the spiritual environment when Jesus came. You look at it and you look at throughout history and think, man, Lord, that was the best time for you to come. But when the fullness of the time had come, it says that God... Sent forth his son. Paul's saying, listen, remember your identity is not about, it's not defined by what you do, but about what God did for you, about what God gave you. And the first thing you need to see that God gave you is he gave you his son. Guys, think about this. God sent his son. Now we do know, because Jesus is God the Son, that he is God. That this is, in a very real sense, God Himself saying, "Here I am. I give you myself." And it's interesting that Paul would do this; that he he would first say God sent His Son, bringing up this reality that that of His deity. But then he says, "God has sent His Son." Listen, born of a woman. What's that speak of? His humanity. He was actually born of of a woman. Obviously. Paul here doesn't talk about the virgin birth, but the fact that he's bringing up the fact that Jesus was actually born of a woman is bringing up the reality of his his humility, or I'm sorry, his his humility, that too, his humanity. But also he was born under the law. He was also born a Jew, but specifically born uh, born as one who was called from a young age covenantally to keep the law of God. And guess what? He did perfectly. Now, why is this important? It's important because Paul says God sent his son, His own Son, who was born of a woman, born under the law for this purpose. Verse 5, to redeem those who are under the law that we might receive the adoption as sons. In other words, He gave us His Son, not just so that our sins could be washed away, not just so that we could have something removed, but so that He could give us this adoption of sons. He could give us this sonship. He gave us His Son so He could give us His sonship check this out the author of hebrew says it was fitting for him speaking of god in bringing notice many sons to glory to make the captain of their souls perfect through sufferings do you understand guys when he says many sons that he is in a sense equating us positionally to jesus Do you understand that even though Jesus is the only begotten Son of God, that being in him, you now have a position of sonship with him? You've been adopted into an equal standing? It doesn't mean you're God. It doesn't mean you become part of the Godhead, but the privileges of the Godhead are yours. It sounds almost too good to be true, doesn't it? It sounds almost cultic, doesn't it? No, that can't be. No. No, that's a bit heavy. That sounds almost New Age. That can't be. I thought we were wretched sinners. Come on, remind us again that we're wretched sinners. Okay, you're wretched sinners. But guess what? You've been adopted in Christ as a son or daughter in equal standing in privilege as God the Son. In equal standing in privilege. He gave His Son to give you that adoption but he didn't just give you a son look at verse 6 and because you are sons or sons and daughters he god sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts crying out abba father if his son is his provision for our identity his spirit is his assurance for our identity God sent His Spirit, God the Spirit, given to you as a believer, indwelling in you as a believer, to assure you that you belong to Him. Guys, this is why understanding the work of the Spirit is so important. The very assurance of your salvation, the very knowledge that you do belong to God is wrapped up in the work that the Holy Spirit does. Paul says a similar thing, In in Romans 8.15, listen, he says, For we do not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received. listen, the spirit of adoption by which we cry out, Abba, Father. Interesting, because here in Galatians he says, the spirit of the Son cries out, Abba, Father. And And in Romans he says, but we cry out. Which is it? It's both. God's Spirit, guys, has taken residence up in us who believe and is now speaking to our spirit and urging us. It's as if he's saying with us, say it with me now. Say, Abba, Father. Cry out to God as your Abba, Father. Cry out to God as your Daddy. I wonder how many of us wish we would have been able to do that with our earthly fathers. Actually been able to address them tenderly. As daddy. Maybe we did when we were quite small, but something happened in the relationship for some reason, and that seemed to be gone, and we, we wish that was so again. I think part of the reason why we have such a hard time with our earthly fathers is not just the reality that fathering has, well, it's kind of gone in the pot in the last several generations. Because I think it's, it's always been hard to be a father. I think part of the reasons it's so difficult for us to get, to, a fa- to get along with our fathers is because we are looking to receive something from our earthly fathers that we can only get from our heavenly father. We're looking for a sense of identity, a sense of acceptance that we can only get from our earthly Father. And I think when Paul talks about this reality of God sending his spirit, he's reminding the Galatians, don't you know, when these Judaizers say to you, you're not really a child of God, he really doesn't accept you as a son or daughter. That they're lying to you and you're already accepted. That the Judaizers were taking advantage of their desire to be connected with their father and manipulating them away from the gospel. And Paul's saying, no, the gospel is, God has given you his spirit and his spirit is not only changing you but telling you constantly you can cry out to god as your father guys listen if you are moved by that if that impacts you at all and you think yes god thank you that you're my father and that moves you it's because the holy spirit wants to move you in that direction I know that, that broken relationships, especially with our dads, are very painful. But don't you see that what you need is not to have that relationship restored as much as to know that you're in right relationship with your Heavenly Father? Don't you recognize that, that this is the identity He's given you? He says, Listen, I'm giving you my spirit so that you can know that you are mine. The Bible says God only chastens those who are His. So when you are convicted by the Holy Spirit that you cannot continue in a certain direction, praise God that he's your father and he loves you enough to deal with you. The Bible Bible teaches that we can only know the truths about God if the Holy Spirit opens our eyes to those truths. So if you understand the grace of God in your life, thank your heavenly father that he's given given you his spirit so that you can know those things. Do you cry out, not just whisper, not just maybe dare wish to be it to be true, but do you cry out with God's spirit? Yes, God, you are my daddy. You are my father because that's where God wants to bring you. That intimate, that real right now. Guys, that's your identity. I'd be willing to bet there's times when my kids don't feel like they're my kids. They don't feel like they measure up. I'd be willing to bet there's times like that because I think all kids probably feel that way with their parents. But you know, if they ever came to me and said to me, Dad, I'm sorry that I'm not a good enough daughter or I'm not a good enough son, my heart would be devastated, absolutely crushed, because I would never want them to think that their identity as my child has anything to do with them Doing what I want them to do. I want them to do what I want them to do because they are my sons and daughters, not to make them my sons and daughters. Is the Spirit of God working that in you? Is the Spirit of God working that in you? Is the Spirit of God crying with your spirit where you desire to say, Yes, God, you're my daddy? Because if that's not happening, if that's not happening, You need to go back to the basics of the gospel. You need to go back and say, Lord, why? I need this, Lord. Now, some of you might be thinking, John, that sounds very experiential, like you're really encouraging some sort of an experience. Well, you know, Paul didn't say that the the Holy Spirit just testifies calmly or or peaceably. It says crying out. The word is crying out. There is a, a experiential crying out that the Spirit of God produces in our hearts that we know that we're His. The day I got saved, I knew I was gonna be in heaven forever. Why? The night before, I was doing things that don't deserve being repeated. And yet I knew, why did I know? Because the Spirit of God testified to my spirit that I could cry out, you're my Father. You're my father. I know my father. Do you have that? Guys, God wants that for you. He says this in verse seven, and I'll close with this. He says, therefore, you are no longer a slave. Yeah, but I keep falling into sin. I keep yelling at my kids. I keep looking at things I shouldn't look at. I keep drinking to excess. I keep lying to people. I keep neglecting the Lord. I must be a slave. Do you or do you not believe that what Christ has done for you is sufficient? Yes or no, man? Do you believe that when Jesus died on the cross, that paid for your sins, past, present, and future. Do you or do you not believe that the righteousness that you need from God has to come from God because it has to be the righteousness of God and that can only come from a a free gift? Do you believe that? Yes or no? Do you believe that your identity is in Christ alone, Yes or no. Guys, the Lord wants you to be free. He doesn't want you to keep trying to think, my identity is about, I'm going to succeed in these things. I'm going to accomplish these things. I'm going to make God happy if I do this. That is not who you are. That is a lie. Who you are is God's child, He's given you His Son. He's given you his spirit. You're no longer a slave but a son. And he says in verse seven, and if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. Paul said this later on in Romans chapter eight. Not only that, not only do we have the spirit in us, crying out, Abba, Father, but we also who have the first fruits of the spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves Eagerly waiting for, notice, the adoption. And what's the adoption? The redemption of our bodies. See, guys, here's the reality. We still live in that tension of the already and the not yet. We are already adopted as sons and daughters. Equal in privilege to God the Son. And yet we are not yet in that place of being in intimacy with God as God the Son is, with God the Father. We don't have yet that intimacy with the Father because why? Because we still have these bodies that within them still have this sinful nature. We have a new nature. The Holy Spirit's caused us to have new life and we have a new nature and there's this war going on which is also chapter five of Galatians. But we still have this old nature, and because we have this old nature, we long, we groan within us for when this body will be given up for a new one. When our adoption is complete and we dwell with him forever, we long for that. Not only do we long for that, guys, listen, but we expect that. Do you know the word hope in the New Testament means expectation? We don't use hope that way In English, we think hope like wishful thinking. But the word hope in the New Testament means expectation. I expect this. Do you expect to be in a place one day where you'll never want to sin again? Do you expect to be in a place one day where God will embrace you as a child With the same passion and the same fervency and the same acceptance as he does Jesus. Do you expect that for your future? Because that's your inheritance now. You see, guys, when you understand that your identity is only in Christ, it's only because of what he's provided for you in the gospel. When you understand that, you know what happens? You expect that inheritance. You expect that inheritance. And you'll be able to say, as Paul said to the Philippian church, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Bring it on. Get me with a truck, I don't care. <laughs> Let me get whatever disease I need to get. Whatever. It's going to be difficult, to want to go through it, but the bottom line is, at the end, it's going to be great, because to die is gain, because I have an inheritance as a child of God, and I'm a child of God only because of what Christ has given me. That's the gospel. I know what you guys are believing, that's so what I'm believing. Guys, let's reject the stupid religion that we hold on to. And let's embrace what we've been given in Christ. We are his sons and daughters.